of the words of that song. Talk about the Father's love for us, what he's done for us in King Jesus, and yet, how often do we, like the, the people of Israel in the book of Malachi, respond, how have you loved us? Mm. You see, oftentimes when we are so self-focused and have so much love for ourselves, we can't see anyone else's love for us, including God's. Sometimes we boast in our own abilities and our own skills instead of boasting in Jesus Christ alone. The author of the song said, I will boast, will not boast of anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But if I boast, I will boast in Jesus Christ. Hmm. It's what the Apostle Paul says in, in Galatians 6 verse 14 where, where he says, far be it for me to boast except... In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ooh. by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, we need to adopt biblical thinking when we think about life. Amen. Because all of us are tempted every day to love ourselves more than the Lord and to question if the Lord really loves us. Amen. Because we've been thinking too much of ourselves. We haven't boasted in the cross of Christ. Well, I say all that because our passage this morning is all about boasting but causing us and turning us from boasting in ourselves, boasting about ourselves, to boasting in the cross of Christ. To seeing what Jesus Christ has done for us and putting all our affections, all our hopes, all our attention on him and responding to him in heartfelt obedience and lifelong service for the rest of our lives. So if you have your Bibles with me, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. And this morning we're going to finish that chapter, looking at verses 17 through 34. If you're with us here for the first time, we've been walking through the book of Matthew for several years now, piece by piece. We will probably end sometime next spring as we pick it back up uh, next January. But this morning we'll finish Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 34. We read this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink, that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to, to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, let, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sights and followed him. Here's what I think is the main point of Matthew chapter 17, uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 34, the, the main point of the sermon this morning. Servant-hearted sacrifice, not superiority. Humility, not haughtiness, must mark God's people. Servant-hearted sacrifice, not superiority. Humility, not haughtiness, must mark God's people. As we walk through this passage together this morning, we'll see the need for humility through three pictures. First, we see the need for humility through Jesus' prediction. We see that in verses 17 through 19. Second, we see the need for humility through the disciples' pride. We see that in verses 20 through 28. And third, we see the need for humility through the blind men's posture. We see that in verses 29 through 34. So three pictures that show us the need for humility. We see the need for humility through Jesus' prediction, through the disciples' pride, and through the blind men's posture. First, we see the need for humility through Jesus' prediction. Remember the context here for, for a minute. Jesus has just engaged in these conversations with the rich young ruler and with his disciples directly stating to them and using parables to illustrate his point that in God's kingdom, the last will be first. Those seemingly at the bottom of the totem pole in this life are the ones God values and who will be exalted in the next if they rest, not in their performance, but in his grace. Remember back in chapter 18, Jesus talked about that a childlike dependence on God as admirable. And in our passage last week, he used last minute day laborers to, to make the point that the last would indeed be first. Well, here he puts himself in the position of last to show what true greatness, true exaltation requires. Humility. We read in verse 17 that, that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Now, geographically, he's actually going down. We noted at the beginning of the last chapter that Jesus has left the, the northern region of Galilee, where his hometown was, 
right, to travel downward to the region of Judea, where Jerusalem, the capital city, was. But Jerusalem, terrain-wise, was situated, situated on a hill, right? It was an elevated city, so often the scriptures will talk about going up to Jerusalem. In any case, apart from a geographical lesson, this idea of traveling to Jerusalem is important. Because as we've said before, it's the place where some of the stiffest competition or opposition to Jesus has come. It's from Jerusalem that Herod launched his would-be attack on baby Jesus. It's from Jerusalem that the religious leaders would, would come to verbally attack and accuse the adult Jesus. And it's in Jerusalem where they raise the ante and have Jesus killed. Jesus says that here. He takes the disciples aside and tells them in verse 18, we are going to Jerusalem and there the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Delivering him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. It's not the first time the disciples have heard this sort of thing. This is actually Jesus' third prediction of his death. He predicted it back in chapter 16, verse 21. And in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. And here in Matthew 20. And if you go back and look at each instance, there's more detail provided with each Prediction. So in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus says he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed, but rise again. In chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, he says the, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and be killed, but rise again. And here in chapter 20, we get the most detailed prediction. That the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and condemned and delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and beaten and ultimately crucified. Mm. And you have to ask yourself, as careful Bible readers, we should ask ourselves, why is each prediction progressively more detailed? Well, it could be that, that as Jesus is approaching his death closer and closer, that that with this third prediction, he wants to give his disciples as much information as possible so that they aren't surprised by anything. That's likely. But I also think that given where we are in the text, the, the themes surrounding this text, that Jesus is verbalizing and Matthew is recording the specific details for a reason. He means to show what it is to be humble. This theme of humility, which runs throughout this passage is shown in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. It's an exalted title. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 describe the, the Son of Man as a divine figure who has all authority and all glory, whom all peoples and nations serve and whose kingdom is everlasting. Well, that one, that son of man, Jesus says, is about to be killed. And, and not just killed. Right? It's not just kind of a flat description. Let me give you some details. The very Jews who should gladly accept and be looking for this son of man will instead condemn him to death. And after they've cast their lots, 
They'll hand them over to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish leaders, to toy with him. They'll, they'll mock him, ridicule him. This is your Messiah? This sad semblance of a person is your savior? They'll flog him, beat him with whips embedded with pieces of bone and metal, lash after lash, ripping his flesh apart. And finally, they'll crucify him. The most despicable death known to people at that time. Not only was it a horrendous, painful death, but it was a shameful death. It was reserved for criminals. As they were stripped naked, hung upon a wooden cross, put on public display for all passersby to see. The Son of Man will be shamed. The glorious one will be humiliated as a sign of his humility. You see, all these things won't just happen to come upon him. Jesus already knows in advance what will happen and is going towards it. See, we are going to Jerusalem, he says, knowing what awaited him there. It's not that he will passively be humbled. It's that he will proactively humble himself. All right. The Apostle Paul, when talking about Jesus' death, says in Philippians chapter 2 that, that this Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a shameful cross. Everybody in this world is looking for status, looking for esteem, looking to be made much of. But look at Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived, laid down his life and became loved. So how are we going to stand next to him and think that our titles, our degrees, our income, our appearance, our apparel, our achievements are impressive? Mm. To who? Mm. Not him. Amen. This is the son of God himself mm. who left heaven to come here and become like the scum of the earth. Mm. Condemned. Crucified. Cast aside. It's what Jesus predicted. And it's what would happen. But we'll see this as we read through the later chapters of Matthew, that Jesus was indeed delivered to the chief priests and scribes by one of his own disciples at that. They held a fake trial and they conjured up false charges and fake witnesses against him and condemned Jesus to death. After which they handed him over to the Gentile leader, Pontius Pilate, who at the Jews' request ordered Jesus to be crucified by Roman soldiers. And Jesus was stretched out on a cross and killed. But friends, that's not the end of the story. Amen. Every time Jesus predicts what will happen to him, he never ends at death. Because death for Jesus is not the final step. Jesus 
got up from the grave. All right. He Amen. came back to life after dying. Amen. He was raised on the third day as he said he would be. Amen. For Jesus, the path which he was showing his disciples, even through these predictions, was that the, the way up was to first come down. He came down from heaven, down even further to the humiliation of death on a cross, but up from the grave through resurrection and exalted on high for all time. Amen. But first, love. First, a cross, then a crown. And we'll learn that his way will be our way. Indeed, his way was for our sakes. You see, these kind of cold, hard predictions of, of Jesus being condemned and beaten and crucified and risen have spiritual implications. He died and rose again for us. In verse 28, we'll read, he gave his life as a ransom for us. Amen. So no matter how good we look on the outside, All right. how impressive we might look to others, in God's eyes, our sin is so putrid that it caused the painful death of his beloved son to remedy. Amen. Jesus had to die for us to be able to live. So where is boasting in self? Another had to suffer for you. All right. Where is boasting himself when the only one worthy of boasting belittled himself and came to suffer for you? Amen. Amen. For me. I think we're meant to, to look at Jesus here and his divine predictions that came to, back, to pass about his suffering and death and resurrection and see in him the ultimate display of humility. And mold our lives after his. Mold our minds after his. Those who become low are the ones God lifts up. But it's hard to grasp that when our hearts and minds are already lifted up. Which is what we see in verses 20 through 28 as we learn our need for humility through the examples of the disciples' pride. Point number two, we see our need for humility through the disciples' pride. Coming off verses 17 through 19 and into verse 20, you might immediately notice things that don't match. While Jesus has just predicted his passion, the disciples are pondering their positions, their places of prestige. They're worried about who's the greatest. It's basically the same conversation or competition that was voiced back in chapter 18. Just here, taking a slightly different angle. Here, it's not a question among themselves about who's the greatest, but a question posed to Jesus to secure the greatest position, a place of privilege in his kingdom. And here, they get mamas involved. As the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who are identified as, as James and John back in chapter 4, comes asking Jesus if her sons can sit on the right hand and on the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. Amen. If they can have greater access, greater acclaim in their proximity to Jesus. Now, 
there are some things to be critical of here for sure. But let's start with what's commendable. You know, it's a distinctly Christian trait, not simply to see all that's wrong in a situation, but to commend what's commendable. So, so let's start there. First, notice that this mother and her sons with her acknowledge that Jesus is a king. There's no crown, no robe, no palace, but as they witness this man calm storms and cast out demons, they've understood an authority, a rule inherent in his being. Amen. Amen. Though in this world he looks like a castoff, he's actually a king. And in the world to come, his kingship will be fully realized, fully consummated in his eternal kingdom. And so here this mother and her sons come before Jesus, kneeling, verse 26, as a subject would before a master, asking about this coming kingdom. This mother has her sights set on heaven. She sees something better for her sons than earthly success. She's thinking of the afterlife for them. Let's acknowledge those things as good and ponder ways we might emulate some of the initial instincts here. I mean, parents, I wonder if we model to our children an acknowledgement of Jesus's kingship. Is that what our children know of us? That we see Jesus as exalted over everything and over everyone in our lives? Or are there competing rulers they might point to? Our jobs, our phones, our finances as having the top spot. Also, are we the kind of parents that prioritize our children's spiritual standing? Or does worldly success dominate our ambitions for our kids? I mean, what's best in your mind for your children? Is it that they get the best grades? Make the best teams? Get a scholarship to the most respected universities? Secure a good paying job? Or is your top priority not worrying so much with what happens to your kids here, but ensuring they have a place in heaven? Amen. This mom wants her sons to be with Jesus Amen. forever. Praise God for moms like her, for parents like her. Let's model what's good here a Godward focus for our families. Let's give thanks for parents that, like her, have imperfectly pushed eternity with Jesus as the best thing for us. So whether you're young or old, maybe a direct application for you this afternoon is to call your parents and simply tell them thank you for pointing your focus on Jesus and his kingdom. Amen. If they passed away, if they've already died, then direct your thoughts to the Lord. Praise God in prayer for their influence in your life while they live. Amen. This mom takes her sons to Jesus and wants them to be with him always. Amen. We can praise what's praiseworthy here. But we must also focus on what's foolish here. I mean, it's great for a mother and sons to come before Jesus, but what was the ultimate purpose in doing so? You have to ask yourself that, that question when you consider what they wanted from Jesus. 
Did James and John think that they could secure a better place with Jesus if their sweet mom pleaded on their behalf? Mm. Mm. Many commentators believe that their mother was the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. That's totally possible. Matthew chapter 27 tells us that, that their mother was, was with the other women to witness the crucifixion of Jesus. It could very well be that, that she is the unnamed sister of Mary that other gospel writers talk about. If so, did they pridefully think that this strong familial connection would sway Jesus? I mean, you're going to turn away your aunt, are you? You know we're going to get back to your mama. <laughs> but we learn here that family ties can't force Jesus' hand. Amen. Kids, I hope you see that here. That your parents can't plead with Jesus for you to have a spot in heaven. Amen. Their relationship to Jesus don't automatically result in your relationship with Jesus. Amen. Amen. What is your standing with the Lord? You know what they most want. What is it that you most want? Is it to be with Jesus. For these sons it was. But only if they got the best place. They wanted to be seated in the VIP section of Jesus' coming kingdom. Right next to Jesus. That's where we belong. Perhaps still fresh in their minds was Jesus' promise at the end of chapter 19. That in the new world, the disciples who followed him would sit on 12 thrones. But that wasn't enough. Mm. They didn't want no throne down on the end next to Bartholomew. <laughs> that is. They wanted their thrones right next to Jesus. So that when people look at him, they got to look at us too. Amen. Who that in the same frame with Jesus? <laughs> That's the heart of the matter. Maybe you can recognize it in yourself. Using Jesus as a prop for your praise. Mm. I can recognize it. I've got to actively fight, wrestle against, seeking statements of what a great sermon. More than valuing sentiments of what a great savior. Mm. Constantly wrestle against this shift of focus from Jesus to self. Jesus wants people to look at him. Amen, man. The disciples instead looked at themselves and their place, which would be remarkable enough on its own. But especially given the picture Jesus just painted of himself, Jesus just vividly laid out how he would be brutally beaten and viciously killed on a Roman cross. Look at what the Son of Man will go through. Yet with his words just fresh in the air. These two disciples come and through their mom ask, look, what kind of prominence can we have in that? Mm -hmm. It's a picture of a self-consumed heart. People can share hard details, tragic details about their lives, and within minutes you can make the conversation about you. Concern with one's own status can cloud out concern for others can cloud out concern over weightier spiritual matters. And that's what we see here. 
Jesus has said that he's about to die and rise again, and they totally missed the point. Why will he die? Why will he rise? It seems to not even cross their minds. Their focus is so turned inward. Maybe it's why we can't grasp or aren't awed by spiritual matters. Why talk of Christ's death and resurrection don't move us. Amen. Because we're too preoccupied with our own self-glory. It's impossible, saints, to be self-centered and Christ-centered at the same time. Amen. In any case, Jesus responds to the ill-time request in verse 22. Telling James, John, and their mother, you don't know what you're asking. You've not fully grasped what true glory for me as the king and the way of the kingdom will require. Suffering. Suffering. He says to them in the, at the end of verse, or in verse 23, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? This cup imagery is used throughout the scripture to describe God's wrath. The cup of judgment and suffering that God pours out. Adam read it for us earlier in Psalm 75, verses 7 through 8. That God executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Amen. Down to the very grounds of it. Or in Isaiah 51, verse 17, God talks about how he fed the people of Israel his cup of wrath through the exile to their Babylonian captives. He says, wake yourself, wake yourself, Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Amen. Who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, Amen. the cup of suffering. But there was still a cup full of God's fury Amen. for the sins of mankind to absorb. A cup that no mere human being could ever fully take. Amen. And yet Jesus says that cup is reserved for me. Amen. I am going to drink it. That will be my path to exaltation. Amen. And so he says, in essence, to these brothers, you want the prestige, the place of honor. But can you take the punishment of the cup? Mm. They rashly say at the end of verse 22, we are able. <laughs> they know not what they say. Jesus himself will later plead with the Father, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup from me. The horror of the unhinged fury of God was unthinkable to even Jesus Christ, the Lord. And yet these disciples think they can take it? Again, it's a sign of their pride. A sign of ours. We overestimate our abilities and underestimate God's righteous standing. And what anger he should pour out on us for what we actually have done against him. Nevertheless, Jesus is not overly harsh with these disciples. 
He accepts their overconfident statement at face value that they can drink his cup and says in verse 23, you will drink it. Not in the same way. The son suffered in a unique way. Amen. In a sacrificial way. But all those who want to share the glory of the son will suffer in some way. Amen. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that, that as the spirit indwelt children of God, that we are to be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Amen. In order that we might be glorified with him. And these two brothers would prove Jesus to be true. James would be the first disciple martyred in Acts chapter 12, killed by the sword of King Herod. A faith shared by 10 of the other disciples, martyred. And James's brother here, John, the only disciple not martyred, would spend the latter years of his life exiled as a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos to die a slow death in captivity. All Jesus's disciples would have a share in the cup of suffering, including us. It is God's appointed path to glory. Amen. The focus widens a bit to include the whole cast of disciples, the whole cast of the 12. When they hear about these two brothers' special requests, they were enraged, indignant at the brothers, we read. But why were they so mad? Was it because the brothers misunderstood Jesus' mission and made things all about themselves? Well, no, that's not why they were so mad. I mean, these other ten have been doing the same thing at times. They're so mad because James and John have tried to get an upper hand on them to have the best seat at the table and have used an unfair advantage, family connections. With Jesus' last days on earth rapidly approaching, they are all still involved in this ongoing competition with each other for glory. But Jesus doesn't want his people to be characterized by clamoring for the top spots, looking for positions of prestige over each other. He says in verse 25, that's what the rulers of the Gentiles do. Lord over people. Their great ones will authority over each other. Now, now, this is not Jesus saying that there's no good usage of authority or people in authority. Rather, it's a general statement to describe the way of the world, where power and position are everything. But in Jesus' kingdom, among his people, that's not how things should be. Brother, he says in verse 26, whoever will be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. It's but another instance of the upside down values of Christ's kingdom. We've seen it throughout in Matthew's gospel. The meek will inherit the earth. The poor in spirit will have the kingdom of heaven. The persecuted will rejoice. The first will be last, and the last first. And here, the greatest must be like a servant or a slave. Mm -hmm. 
lowly. Amen. The world seeks and defines greatness based on individual accolades or outstanding performance that exceeds others. Our great ones are the self-made man, mm. right? The entrepreneur who self-starts and who's a millionaire on his own. Amen. Our great ones are the dominant athletes with amazing statistics. The people who are so driven, so gifted, so much better than anyone else at what they do that they deserve the praise that's constantly heaped upon them. Amen. Even if what they do is all for their own glory in the first place. Hmm. But Jesus redefines greatness. All right. It's not so much in how amazing you are, hmm. how much you can showcase your skills, your talent, your intellect, or power to serve your own interests. It's how much you can labor to serve others Amen. for their good and God's glory. Amen. And again, he presents himself as a model example of true greatness shown through true humility. He says those in his kingdom must be marked by this kind of servant-mindedness because the king has demonstrated this kind of servant Mindedness. Hmm. Jesus says in verse 28, they are to do this just as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to earth and he deserves to be served. After all, this was God in the flesh. Amen. Jesus could have demanded the royal treatment. But he understood his purpose. Mm -hmm. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Mm -hmm. Haven't we seen that throughout this gospel? Mm -hmm. He's served countless sick people by healing them. Countless hungry people by feeding them. Yes. But there was one more great act of service still to come. Amen. Jesus hinted at it in thinking about drinking the cup of God's wrath. He was to serve ultimately by giving his life as a ransom for many. Amen. He was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices. No longer would it be bulls and goats, but his life Amen. sacrificed and substituted for sinful people. Amen. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of a suffering servant in Isaiah 53, whose life would make many to be accounted as righteous. Amen. Jesus knew why he came. The same reason the angel announced to his mother Mary in Matthew chapter 1. To save his people from their sins. And there was only one way to do it. His perfect life Amen. as a ransom for us in our place. We sinners through and through as we are deserve to die and to be judged forever for our sin. But Jesus, compassionate Savior as he is, wonderful servant as he is, gave up his life for us. Amen. He died as our substitute to ransom us, to deliver us, to buy us back away from lifelong bondage to Satan and sin and to death and hell. And to transfer Amen. us permanently into his eternal kingdom. Amen. His life was lived not for himself, but for others. He died for us. Amen. For our sake, to ransom many. That could be you. 
Friend, that many is not all. So you should not presume that Jesus died for you if there's no evidence of his work in your life. But neither is that many none. All right. Or just a handful. Or only the folks who grew up in church or who lived pretty good lives. No, that many is many. So you should not stay away from Jesus today. Amen. Today is the day where you turn your heart to the Lord Jesus completely and receive the full benefit of what this suffering servant has come to do for you. Amen. He took the full cup of God's wrath for you. He drank the full cup of judgment so that there's no more judgment juice for you to drink. Amen. He drank all the dregs. It's not even the grounds at the bottom of the cup no more. He drank it all for you. Amen. He was condemned and beaten and spit upon and harassed and crucified for sinners like you and me. He rose up from the grave for you. Amen. If you repent of your sins today, if you express a heartfelt sorrow over your sin, and if you renounce your allegiance to sin, and if you trust in Christ alone, you can be saved today. Amen. We want you to know that salvation. Friends, do that right now. We're not going to call you up on an altar call, but you can do that in your seats. Tell the Lord Jesus you hate your sin and you want to live for him. Tell him, thank you, Lord, that you came to save a sinner like me, and I want to live for you. He will not leave you to yourself. Amen. Don't leave here today without knowing Jesus. Leave today knowing that Jesus has done these things for you. Trust in him that you might be included in this many that he came to ransom. There's no greater act of selfless service than Christ's work of suffering for the sake of sinners. Of coming to serve us by giving his life for us. And coming to serve God by fulfilling all his purposes perfectly. Jesus served for our good and for God's glory, and Amen. so must we. He means for us to model our lives after his. Now, we will never die substitutionary deaths for other people. Amen. We aren't God. We aren't perfect. We can't purchase anyone's salvation. But we can lay down our lives in selfless service for others. Amen. We see it modeled all throughout our church from countless volunteers working behind the scenes, providing selfless service in a number of ways for a number of weeks without seeking any recognition. I mean, we just show up and voila, there's heat. There's snacks. There's money in the church's account. The lights are on because the bills have been processed and paid. We can enjoy our services because of others' service to us. Amen. Well, we see this kind of selfless service for others and a number of our members who, who admit to not really feeling like they've ever been discipled themselves early in their Christian lives. And still very much feeling that they, they have a need for that. And yet, nonetheless, venturing out to disciple others. Amen. To care for them. We want to model more and more of Christ's heart in every facet of our lives. Amen. I mean, what would happen if we adopted a I'm not here to be served, but serve mentality in our homes? Oh. Husbands, how might that transform the way you come home from work on weekdays? 
I'm convicted that too often I come home seeking hotel service, a spotless house, meals delivered in a silver platter to my bedroom door, and complete silence. I've had a long day. I deserve it. Amen. But what if instead of seeking service, we instead served? How might it transform Sunday mornings? Maybe you come here to be filled up to be cared for, to be greeted, to be ministered to. But how often do you think about filling others up, greeting them, ministering to them? Kids, how might that change your attitude at school? Perhaps instead of working to simply outshine your classmates or outperform your teammates with the praise of people or win the praise of people, you instead use the grasp of a certain subject that you've got down pat to, to help a fellow classmate. Or you use your, your skills on the court, on the field, to, to help less skilled teammates. Amen. At the job, how might seeking to serve, not be served, help you think through work from home options that your job might offer? Yes, I know it's sweet to not have to fight DC traffic and deal with folks' attitudes on the highway and especially on the metro. Amen. To just wake up and work in your pajamas. That may be fine. <laughs> but have you considered how you're going into the office, even though it's not what you prefer might serve others? If nothing more than putting you, perhaps the only Christian influence in your coworkers' lives, in their presence on an ongoing basis. I mean, how else are they gonna hear about why Christ came? How else will they see fleshed out in human form the service that he causes people to, if not through you and your example? Have you at least considered that? What would happen if we all labored to have a serve God, serve others mindset? rather than serve self. Well, we look a lot more like Jesus. Amen. And friends, that's God's goal for us, to conform us more and more and more into the image of Christ. You see, like the disciples, we tend to think that salvation ought to lead straight to glorification. But we can't skip the long, hard, humbling process of sanctification. Amen. Where God is growing us in godliness, tearing us away from a self-interested, self-exalting, status-seeking, serve-me mindset. Amen. And training us to live our lives in service to others for the glory of Christ and not ourselves. Amen. Pray the Lord will steadily mold us into these kinds of people, not just individually, but as a church. Pray that the greatness that we compete for would, would be the greatness that Jesus demonstrated, but that the disciples missed a greatness in servant-hearted sacrifice. Amen. And pray that we, like them, would be humbled as Jesus shows us what true greatness looks like. We learn our need of humility through the disciples' pride here, verses 20 to 28. 
And, and lastly, we learn our need for humility through one more picture in this passage, through number three, the blind men's posture. Mm -hmm. We learn our need for humility through the blind men's posture. From the disciples' exalted plea to have the best places in the kingdom, in verses 29 through 34, we see those at the lowest places here and now with a far humbler posture. Verses 29 and 30 tell us that as Jesus and his disciples leave out of Jericho, this city on the way to Jerusalem, they come upon two blind men sitting by the roadside. Luke's account tells us they were also begging. In every society, beggars are at the bottom of the social stratosphere. Add that they were blind, and it only intensifies their despised status. And yet it's, it's these two men who serve as a foil to the two disciples, James and John and, and all the rest just presented. It's they who mark the kind of humble posture that Jesus calls his people to. We see their humility in a few ways here. First, we see their humility in their plea. When they hear that Jesus is passing by, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Amen. They recognize, probably from what they've heard about Jesus, that he is the promised king from David's lineage, Amen. the promised Messiah that God said he would bring. But what do they first ask of this king? Not for great spots in his kingdom, as if that's what they were owed. I mean, maybe we wouldn't even blame them if they asked for that. I mean, they lived a despised life now. It would seem only fair to have an exalted status later. But no, they plead instead for mercy. They don't understand themselves to deserve anything from God. They don't presume upon God's kindness, but think that any act of kindness from him would be straight gift. We do well to learn from them. We don't deserve anything from God but to drink the cup of his wrath. We do well to plead that God would simply continue to be merciful to us. Amen. But we also see these men's humility through their persistence. Amen. Verse 31 tells us that the crowd around them told them to keep quiet, to, to be silent, stop calling out to Jesus. It's what the world around us is doing today. From employers to educators, politicians to family members telling us to stop talking about Jesus. That's right. Or else. That's right. And yet these men cry out all the more, even louder, Lord, have mercy on me. You see, a truly humble person don't care much about what other folks think about. These men didn't care about the crowds around them. They weren't trying to seem respectable in their eyes. Their focus was on Jesus. His approval was the only one they cared about. You see, friends, fear of man, caring about the opinions of other people, is one of the most subtle and yet most deadly forms of pride. You want to look good in front of others. And so you're willing to cater to their desires in order to win or keep their approval. So you get a little soft-spoken about Jesus. You don't pray before meals no more around your coworkers. Don't want to seem like one of those people. I mean, you want people to think well of you. But it's Jesus who we should want people to think well of. 
who we should want people to exalt. Amen. And so these men cry out for all to hear, this is the king, the Amen. son of David, who is a merciful king, and we want him to have mercy on us. Amen. Friends, that's humility. And their humility is rewarded. Jesus turns aside and asks them in verse 32, what do you want me to do for you? If you're perceptive, you'll notice it's the same question he asked James and John's mother in verse 21. Hmm. What do you want? Hmm. But while the request there was born from pride and not granted, here the request comes from humility and is granted. Amen. They simply say, let us see. Let our eyes be open. Take care of just one need. We know you're able. And Jesus, in pity, touched them and gave them sight. The ones seeking mercy, not to be made much of, found what they were seeking. Amen. And would end up finding even more as the end of, of, of verse uh, 34 tells us that they followed him. And Jesus already promised those who follow him would have eternal riches and rewards in heaven. But the humble come first to him for who he is, crying out for mercy. They don't come simply for the rewards, they come for him. And in receiving his mercy, they find rewards beyond what they could imagine. Friend, if you're not a Christian here this morning, cast away your pride today. Don't care about what nobody around you might think, what nobody back home might think. Call out to Jesus for mercy today. Ask him to open your eyes spiritually and trust that he can bring you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen. If you are a Christian, cast aside your pride today. Don't care about what nobody around you might think, what nobody back home might think. Uh, call out to Jesus today for mercy. Amen. To be merciful to others. To remove the blinders that keep popping up in our lives, causing us to be single-sided, focusing in on ourselves rather than serving others for the Lord. Amen. God gives grace to the humble. It's how he came to us, lowly and humble, and how he means for us to live now. Amen. So that one day, we actually might live with him Amen. in glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the way you called us to live lives outside and beyond ourselves. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have a better word for us than what we would say to ourselves, a better word for us than what the world would say to us. Hmm. But, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that what you command, you also have done. Yes. We thank you that you have humbled yourself for us. And so, Lord, we don't work on our own strength, Lord. We work by the strength that you provide. Thank you for saving sinners like us. We pray that, Lord, that we would be a humble people who live to make much of you all of our lives. We pray that we would not boast in anything but in the cross of Jesus Christ. Mm. It's at the cross where we lay down our burdens, where we lay down our sin, where we lay down our pride and simply say, Lord, thank you. Yeah, thank you for who you are. Thank you, thank you for what you've done. Mm. 
We thank you in advance for what you will continue doing in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.